Good morning. Good to be with you. If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, please, to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is where we're going to be together today. Man, I'm honored to be here with you. I've been honored all weekend to be with your students and hang out with them and be in the Word with them. And uh, now I have the opportunity to be here with you guys. Taylor and Ashley, thank you so much for opening your pulpit. You ought to be proud. I know you are. I know you appreciate what you've got in your pastoral team here, but this week I've had an opportunity to see up close how they're ministering to your people. So, you know, from Taylor to Trey and even Will now jumping into the mix, and I'm sure you got, everybody else is great, but those are the three that I got to interact with this week, and uh, they get an A+. I hope you appreciate them and uh, value them. Yeah, amen, amen. And uh, your students are pretty great too. Let me tell you about them for just a second. You know, um, I get the good fortune of speaking in a lot of different contexts, lots of different things that my wife and I both get to do. And I'm around students quite a lot, uh, high school students, middle school students, and even college students. And, you know, this is the a age of distraction where they've got a phone in their hand and they're goofing off and they're doing all those things all the time. Not your students, though. Uh, we ask them on Friday night, hey, let's take these moments really seriously in the Word, and uh, I'll be dogged if they didn't do that. They took that very, very seriously, and it's been cool to watch that. And so kudos to you for raising them well. Yeah, amen. Uh, my name is Jamie Dew. I'm the president of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and Level College. If you don't know what that is or what that means, uh, that's okay. It means that we're a school think like a college or a university. We train, though. It's a, it's a niche school. So we're not just doing higher education for the sake of doing higher education. There's lots of wonderful schools that do that. We're a niche school where we train people for pastoral ministries or worship leadership or missions or those types of things. And I have the good fortune of getting to lead that school and all those efforts. And so, man, that's a thrill to do that. I want you to know up front, man, we do that for you. Uh, the, the way this whole thing is built in Southern Baptist life, it's not a hierarchy. It's a bottom-up type of thing. You, the churches, own us. We exist to, to serve you and are accountable to you, and uh, man, I appreciate y'all what you do, so thank you for being exactly who you are. All right, I could talk about that kind of stuff all day long, but I got to get to work. It's John chapter 11. Let me just go ahead and say this up front. I'm actually going to cover 44 verses. I'm not going to read right now 44 verses. I'm going to read the first six verses, and we'll cover the rest of it as we jump in. So if you would, read with me this morning, John chapter 11. As you well know, this is the story of Lazarus' death and resurrection. And so start with me in verse 1 for a moment, if you would. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary, who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So Jesus has a special affectionate relationship with this family. Therefore the sisters sent to him, not surprising, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And now what has says next we wouldn't expect. And so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed. <laughs> Two more days in the place where he was. And then after that, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judah again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today, help us to see and behold you properly. 
Help us to see that through circumstances that are difficult and trying, and at times cause us to not be able to make sense out of what you're doing, help us, Lord, to see and to trust that, in fact, through it all and in it all, you are faithful to us. And so, Father, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts today. I pray that you'd strengthen our walk with you, our resolve to follow you and be obedient. And I pray that, Lord, you'd be magnified and honored in our lives. Lord, simply put, I pray today that you'd use this time to encourage and make your people strong. Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me start off this morning by asking you a question. And I'm not trying to be provocative or controversial, but just an honest-to-goodness question. Do you ever have those times where you struggle to trust that God is faithful? Do you ever have those moments where you trust or struggle to trust that God is faithful? Now, look, I'm not asking you, do you believe that God is faithful? Because, hey, this is a Baptist church, right? And probably you just came from Sunday school or something like that. And probably in a Sunday school setting or something like this, if someone asks, is God faithful? We'll get a bunch of amens to it, right? And well so, rightly so. I know that we affirm it, in other words. I'm not doubting or suggesting that you wouldn't or don't affirm that God is faithful. What I'm asking you, though, is if you ever have struggles or trouble actually hanging on to that. Because I suspect that if we're honest with each other, we've all been there. Hey, maybe if we're being honest with each other, you might actually be there right now. Right? The reality of it is each of us faces things sometimes. The story of Lazarus and his death more importantly, the story of our Lord Jesus Christ not responding to his sickness and eventually death the way we would want him to, or quite frankly, we would have expected him to. That's the real story here, right? Simply put, God just doesn't do what we expect him to do sometimes, does he? In fact, sometimes God lets happen that which we grieve and mourn happening. We, he lets happen those things in our lives that are profoundly difficult for us. He lets happen things that we pray with all of our might against, right? He lets happen those things that touch us, hurt us, and sometimes cripple us. And sometimes God just does not make any sense whatsoever, does he? Listen, this story of Lazarus, this is a personal one for me, just personally, Uh I didn't intend to become an academic. I didn't intend to spend my life in a seminary context or anything like that. Certainly didn't intend to be a seminary president. Here's the quick, quick, quick version of how it happened. I started off, just loved Jesus. I came to faith at 18 years old after drugs, alcohol, getting arrested and all those types of things. He radically transformed my life and I was passionate about him. And I was just this walking machine gun of evangelism. I was sharing the gospel with everybody. And then all these people kept asking me these big, big questions that I couldn't answer. Big objections, criticisms about the faith. And I couldn't answer them. And frankly, I felt a little bit guilty that I couldn't answer. I loved Jesus so much. I wanted to be able to defend what I was preaching about him, and yet I couldn't. And so I discovered this stuff called apologetics, and I started reading everything. I went from being a very non-academic guy, a guy who failed two grades coming along, to now all of a sudden doing academics. And specifically, it was like philosophy stuff. And um, long story short, that set me on the trajectory of studying and studying apologetics and philosophy and all those things. If you don't know what apologetics is, it's the defending of the faith. 
And uh, that led to degrees, that led to teaching, that led to faculty positions, that led to administration, and here I am. That's how my life transpired, right? That journey was highlighted by two substantial seasons of doubt and struggle. I've always been the kind of Christian that wonders about things. I still do this. I still am the kind of guy that sits there and considers, well, we believe this, and we also believe this. How in the world do those two go together? I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, and I wonder about that, but it doesn't bother me. It doesn't necessarily create angst for me. I just I wonder about those things. I'm a, I'm a philosophy guy, for crying out loud. But two seasons, two seasons of doubt and struggle. The first time was on the existence of God itself, and that led me to doing some degrees and stuff, and Second time, I was a pastor of a church in North Carolina, Stony Hill Baptist Church. I pastored that church for eight and a half, almost nine years, and I did about 60 funerals in an eight-year window of time. I was around death all the time, and a lot of it was, you know, understandable death. Older folks that had gotten sick and had lived good lives and died, but it wasn't all that. And quite frankly, even those began to bother me. As I did funeral after funeral, especially for young people, beautiful people in the middle of their life, all of a sudden being around it all just began to have this cumulative effect on me of struggle. And I can remember there was this perfect little window of storm in, in this window where I, I, there was this young lady, beautiful young lady who had had breast cancer and it had come back and it just absolutely ravaged her. And the reason this caused me to struggle is because we as a church, we prayed faithfully every single day like broken records that God would heal her, and he didn't. She, as we prayed, the harder we prayed, her cancer got worse and worse and worse, her suffering got worse and worse and worse, and she died, and I struggled. And the one that really hit me was this two-year-old boy who was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, a brain cancer, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed like a bunch of broken records. And he struggled and struggled and struggled and died. I remember when he died. He died on a Monday night. His funeral was on a Friday. I can remember on that week, for that whole week, I can remember person after person in my church and in my community that was going to be coming to the funeral. I can remember just all my people coming up to me and saying things like, you know, Jamie, I've always believed, but... I don't know. I don't know. You ever have those moments where, man, God just doesn't make a lot of sense right now, and I'm struggling, right? Hey, look, if that's you, take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. God is not intimidated by your question. God is bigger than your doubt. And what I think John chapter 11, the passage that my heart in that struggle came back to again and again and again, what we're going to see is that despite our struggle, we're going to see it. God is faithful in it all. So this morning, let me make four points about Christ's faithfulness to us from John chapter 11. Real quick, number one, I want you to see verse number one and six, one through six, and then again, verses 11 through 15, I want you to see that Christ is faithful to teach us, even in sorrow. Christ is faithful to teach us, even in sorrow. This is the story. I mean, Mary sends word to Jesus. He has a close, affectionate relationship with Christ himself. I mean, he loved everybody. 
His eye was on the marginalized constantly. But there was that inner circle of people. You had Peter, James, and John. And then you had Mary and Martha and Lazarus. People that he'd stayed with. People that he'd ministered to. People that he had transformed and loved and redeemed. And he, she sends word to to Jesus that Lazarus, the one that you love, I mean, you'd think right there with that description that this would somehow trigger some extra reaction from Jesus, that he would get up with haste and he would make his way to Lazarus. But in fact, the Bible tells us in verse 1 through 6 that the opposite happened. The fact that Jesus had this special relationship with Lazarus and Mary and Martha didn't trigger him getting up. It actually caused him to stay put a little while longer. And he stayed put, listen to me, during a time that was critical. I mean, this was the moment, if he was ever needed at all, it's right now. Not eventually, Lord, but right now. He's dying right now. You're needed, Lord. And what he does is he stays put. And he stays put long enough not just for Lazarus to continue dying, but to, in fact, die. I mean, we're talking here worst-case scenario, right? He lets him die, and the people mourn. Now, what I want you to see in this is that all of this is orchestrated by a God who knows more than we know, which is, by the way, part of the reason God is not intimidated by your question. It's part of the reason God is not intimidated by your struggle or your angst. Listen, it's as though Christ himself gets that you and I don't get it. It's as though Christ understands that you and I don't understand. It's that Christ can see everything that you and I cannot see, and he will allow us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23. He will allow us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He will allow sorrow to actually come to our lives. And watch this, in and through that sorrow, the reason He allows it to come and beat upon us the way that it does is because in and through that, He's going to teach us. He's going to teach us so many wonderful, rich things, and He's going to teach us through the sorrow. Look at verse 11 through verse 15. Boy, they are feeling it. Verse number 9, I'll start there. Jesus answered and said, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees by the light of the world. But if he walks at the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And these things he said after he had said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go to wake him up. And then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, and they thought that he was speaking about him taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus said it to him plainly, them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He's not sleeping. He's actually dead. And I'm glad for your sakes. Here it is. Listen, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. You hear that? Jesus has orchestrated it. He let the hour of sadness and sorrow come. He will let the hardship visit our soul. And he'll be glad that it's there because Jesus understands that part of the way that we learn the most and part of the way that we learn the best, at least the deep things, the treasured things that should be actually precious to our souls can only come in darkness. 
He says, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go. Now, I want you to see their response. Then Thomas, I love Thomas, by the way. Thomas is the one who doubts. Man, I love the questions and the things he says. Listen to what Thomas says. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. You catch that? How sorrowful he is? Have you ever lost someone so dear to you, so beloved, so integral to your life that you cannot even imagine living without that person? This is the kind of brokenness. This is the kind of shattering of soul that has taken place. They've loved Lazarus so much that now that he's dead, they can't even imagine their life without him. And they would rather just die than live without Lazarus. Listen, why is Jesus doing this? He's doing it so that he can teach. And a good, as a good teacher, he's willing to let us taste the bitterness of death and sorrow so that he can actually teach us of his own faithfulness in it. When this story is said and done, what we will see resoundingly is that things are not the way they seem to us. We may not have understood what God is doing, but when the story is over, we will see that he is the God of glory and that we can trust him. And Christ will let us taste the bitterness of sorrow so that he can teach us of his own faithfulness in it, number one. Christ is faithful to teach us even through sorrow. The second thing I want you to see is that Christ is faithful even when we are frustrated. Christ is faithful even when we are frustrated. I, I heard somebody say the other day, you know, as I grieved this loss, I had to forgive the, that person and this person. I had to forgive myself and she said, and I even had to forgive God. And that immediately struck people as controversial. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's faithful and just. He's done no wrong. What do you mean forgive God? Well, she wasn't insinuating that in fact God had done something wrong. What she was acknowledging is that there are times, my dear friends, where we are just, if we're honest, we're frustrated with him. We're a little mad at him. Something that we loved, something that we treasure has been taken from us. And it happened in a way that it's just hard for us to wrap our head around. And it happened against our hopes, our dreams, our prayers, our petitions, our fasting. God, you did that. And I'm angry. I don't understand. Once again, I w let me just say two things to you to balance out how we should respond to those types of feelings because likely you and I have had those kinds of feelings before or are having them or will have them at some point. Let me say two things to you. On the one hand, yes, be very careful. You are talking to the Almighty, be very careful. And on the other hand, even here, rest knowing that God is God and He's not intimidated by your anger. Christ gets that we don't get it. He knows that we don't know everything he knows. Watch this. This is the part of the passage that ministered to me to the depths of my soul in those seasons of doubt and struggle as I watched people that I love die. And I found myself frustrated that God wouldn't answer the prayers the way that we prayed them. I want you to see it, verse 21. Now Martha said to Jesus when he finally shows up, If you had been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. Woo, be careful, Martha. 
I mean, that's what I would hold up, girl. <laughs> Be careful, you're talking to the Almighty. But you can hear a frustration, you can hear a hurt, can't you? Lord, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Verse 32, and then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Hold on, Martha. I mean, I get it, but you can hear that anger. You can hear that frustration. You can hear that hurt, that rawness. Verse 37, and then some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind, could he not have also kept this man from dying? It's not just Mary and Martha. It's the whole lot of them. They don't understand, Lord. Lord, why? I mean, it, just, there are times it doesn't make sense, right? I mean, God, you love us. God, you have the power. And God, you don't answer our prayers the way we would want you to answer them. And frustration and hurt and brokenness, maybe even a little bit of anger is dashed in there, right? Now, here's what's beautiful. I mean, absolutely, breathtakingly beautiful about this story and about our Lord Jesus Christ. Despite the fact that Martha and Mary and the crowd are inflamed and hurting and raw and expressing it to their Lord. Watch this, watch this, watch this. This is so fantastic. Christ receives it and watch how, what he does not do. Christ does not say, excuse me. Christ does not say, how dare you speak to me that way? Christ doesn't say, do you know who you're talking to here? The one who spoke and brought it all into existence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things came through Him, right? Everything that was made was made by Him. You're talking about the second person of the Trinity, the Logos. The one, the Word itself that spoke and brought it all into existence. The one who sits high and enthroned above it all in majesty and power belongs to Him. And they say to him, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And Christ does not say to them, don't you ever speak to me that way. No. Christ actually wept. <laughs> Listen to what the Bible says, verse 33. Therefore, when Jesus saw their, her weeping... And the Jews who had come with her weeping, listen to this, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled for them. Do you catch that? His response is not one of offense, but his response is one of compassion. Verse 35, the shortest verse in all of the Bible. Look, you've got to catch the significance of this historically, right? You do know, right? That when the Old Testament was written, all of it. And when the New Testament was written, all of it. There were no chapters. There were no verse numbers in it. Those were all later editions by scribes so that we could study more effectively and identify exactly where we're talking to. We could say, hey, check out chapter 7, verse 2. And everybody knew exactly where to go. These are later editions to help us study is what they are. And all of the verses in the whole Bible are like whole sentences, right? Sometimes they're whole paragraphs, right? 
Not John chapter 11, verse 35. Shortest verse in all of the Bible. Two simple words. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. I got to imagine that whoever the dude is that's writing down all those chapter headings and those verses, as he's reading John chapter 11, he stumbles upon those two words and he's struck by the significance and the gravity of what the Bible just said. That the God of this universe, the one who spoke, is moved in such a way by our grief that he wept. Listen, this is why this ministers to my soul. You know what was hard for me as a pastor? When I would pray like a broken record and I would watch people continue to suffer. People that I loved. It's because in those moments, I hate it to say it this way, but in those moments, the reason I'd struggle, and I think that most of us struggle, is because in those moments, it just feels to us like heaven itself is aloof or indifferent to our suffering and our pain. But John chapter 11 reminds us in this passage that in fact that is not the case. The son himself, far from being mad over our raw, broken reaction, is actually moved with compassion by our grief and sorrow. Verse 38, then Jesus again groaning in himself. Listen, this is what I take away from this. Christ is faithful even when we're frustrated. You ever read the Psalms? The Psalms are a big old part of the scripture just filled with the psalmist being raw and honest. Lord, how long? Lord, why do the unrighteous go on and prosper? And why do the righteous suffer? The psalmist will ask again and again and again. Look, God's not intimidated by our struggle. He is faithful, and he is not aloof to our pain and to our sorrow. Let me mention two other things real quick. First of all, Christ is faithful to teach us even through sorrow. Second of all, Christ is faithful even when we are frustrated. Listen to this thirdly. This is important for us, man. Christ is faithful even when there seems to be no hope whatsoever. Look at verse number 39. Verse, 20, verse 38, and Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. I believe the King James says, Lord, he stinketh. There's a stench for he's been dead for four days by this point. You catch that? Jesus sat there and waited and he's waited now so long that by the time he gets there, he's been dead for four days. Wow. Talk about a, a response that seemed passive. And now Christ walks in and he asks the stone to be rolled away and they protest a little bit like, Lord, what, what are you doing, man? There's no point in going in there. He stinks. He's decaying. His body is decomposing at this point. It will profit us nothing for you to go in there. If anything, it will only hit us, the smell of it all, which will just add insult to injury. Lord, there is no hope here. He's dead. He's real dead. He's decomposing dead. There is no turning back. The time to have responded was before he died and you waited. Lord, there is no hope here, right? And so, verse 40, and he said to her, did I not say to you, 
that if you believe, you would see the glory of God. And they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you heard me and that you know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. You ever face moments where there is no hope? At least in human terms, there is no hope. Well, look, here's one, a reminder. Here's a moment right here where there, quite, out, quite frankly, flat out is no hope whatsoever. And in this moment, Jesus Christ steps into it. And my friend, no matter what the situation is, no matter how barren it may seem, no matter how hopeless it may seem, no matter how destitute it may seem, you need to always hang on to the fact that if you've got Christ, you've got hope. Amen? Because he steps into this moment that is purely and completely hopeless. And in that moment, he said, come forth. <laughs> Christ is faithful even when there is no hope. Let me make one more point. I've made three so far, just a review. Christ is faithful to teach us even through sorrow Christ is faithful even when we're frustrated. Christ is faithful even when there seems to be no hope. And fourthly, boy, there's a big one right here. Christ is faithful even in sickness and death. Christ is faithful even in sickness and death. Verse number 21 through verse number 26. Jesus said... Martha said to him, Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother who would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said these words, listen to me. This is the hope of Christianity. There's a lot that we believe about lots of different kinds of things. But if we're honest, why is it that all of us hang on to Christ? Yes, it's for what He does in our life right now, but is it not for the hope of life to come? I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road of our faith to life, right? What it is that I'm clutching to and clinging to is what Jesus Christ says next in response to Martha. Verse 25, and Jesus said to her, listen to this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And the question is, do you believe this? Now, Christ will go on to raise Lazarus up right here at this place, in this particular case. He does it as a foreshadowing, a preview of coming attractions for you and me. For you and me, he does not do this. He does it in one other place in the New Testament, Mark chapter 5, the little girl called Tabitha. He's with his friends, and Tabitha's father's with Christ to appeal to him for healing. And by the time he gets to Jesus to say, Lord, please heal my daughter, he, the father, gets word that she's already died. It's over. 
Christ gets up from that place. Isn't it interesting? In both cases, Christ waits till she's dead. I mean, he's omniscient, right? He already knew that she was sick before the father came. He could have done something about it before. But in both cases, he waits until she's dead and waits until Lazarus is dead. Then he goes. And he gets there and they protest and they protest. Interestingly, he only let Peter, James, and John go. And then he only went in with the mother and the father. And he said to her, Tabitha Kumai, which is to say, little girl, rise up. And she raised up. Those two cases. Why did he heal the little girl? And why did he heal Lazarus? But he won't heal us when we're sick and suffering and eventually dying. He does it in those two cases as a foreshadowing of the promise that he gives us here in John chapter 11, verse 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he will die, shall live. This is the teaching of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you remember this? Christ has been raised from the dead and he is for us the forefruits of the resurrection of our death, burial, and resurrection. Here's what it goes on to say. That Christ is going to return in the second coming and the dead in Christ shall be raised. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, same thing. Two, three big chapters of scripture that teach us the hope. And so here's what Christianity teaches. It's glorious. And by the way, when we think about death and we think about funerals, we often shortchange Christianity from what the real promise is. The funeral's there, the casket's in front of us, there lies so-and-so's body, and pastor will stand up and will say, here lies so-and-so's body, but that's not her, she is in heaven. And we talk about her in heaven now as if everything heaven is to be is fully accomplished, but it's not. You see, Christianity has affirmed essentially three types of phases about our life and our existence. You have your earthly phase of existence right now. It's a phase where body and soul, because you have both. We clearly have bodies, but the Bible talks about us having souls as well. You remember Genesis chapter 2? He took the dust of the ground, he formed and he fashioned it, he breathed into its nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, do you remember this? At death... The body goes back to the dirt where it comes from, and the spirit goes back to God from where it came from. So right now, here's what you are. You are the composition of a body and a soul in union, and that makes you you, and that makes me me. Jamie Dew just is this body and this soul together in union. That's how God made us to be. That's what God in creation intended us to exist in, right? We have the worst enemy of all, our greatest enemy, the enemy called death. Death, we say things about death that quite frankly sound silly. I know why we do it, it's a coping mechanism. We say things about death like, well, you weren't made to live forever. Yes, you were. We say things about death like, well, it's just part of life. No, it quite literally is not. It's like the end of it. We say things like, death is natural. No, it is the most unnatural thing that's ever going to happen to you. God Almighty made you to be flesh, bone, and spirit in union. And death, listen to me, rips it apart. And the body goes back to the dust where it came from, waiting the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the spirit goes up into heaven to be in the presence of Christ, yes, but there in the presence of Christ, wait for Jesus Christ to come back to this earth and finish the work he started. It's not done yet, my friends. Yes, Granny's soul is in the presence of Christ. 
And that's glorious, and it's good, and it's sweet. And I can't imagine what it will be like on that day when my soul rests in the presence of Christ, beholding His glory. But hear me, my dear friend, that's just phase two of my existence. Christianity calls this the intermediate state. It's the time in between my first body-soul existence and my second body-soul existence. And in this intermediate state, my body and soul is not together. My body is in the ground and my soul is in the presence of Jesus Christ, waiting, waiting, waiting for Him to return. And when He returns, listen to this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies shall live again. The dead in Christ shall raise. Do you hear that? This is the promise of the New Testament for us. This is the hope that this body-soul will live again in union. This same body that I am in now will come back from the dead. It will be reunited with the Spirit that indwells it right now. It will be healed of all of its problems. It will be glorified in the presence of Christ. And it will live forever with Him as I am intended, the natural way of how it's supposed to be forever and ever and ever and ever. That's the resurrection. And that is the hope of Christianity. Christ, hear me, Christ is faithful to bring that to pass. Which means this, the graveyard today for us is the place rightly where we mourn. It is right, it is fitting, dare I say it is good. That in that place we go and we remember with sorrow. Because death is an enemy. Don't cheapen it. It's a sting. Don't cheapen it. You need to grieve, but not as those who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Because if you believe that Christ is raised from the dead, then even so, He will come back and He will bring with Him those who sleep. And the dead in Christ shall be raised. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The graveyard is where we mourn today, but hear me. When Christ returns, that's where the party begins. That's where the celebration begins. Because the resurrection shall take place. My, what a faithful Lord. My, oh my, what a faithful Lord. See, the truth, just to circle back where we started, the truth of the matter of it is from right here, you and I can't see everything, can we? We don't know everything, do we? We don't have the wisdom or the vantage point to comprehend what our Lord comprehends Himself. He sees it all, and here's two things you can rest in. He has the wisdom and the knowledge, number one, to navigate it effectively. And number two, He loves you and He loves me. And therefore, the way He will navigate it will not just be wise, it will be for our good. And we walk through these storms and we walk through these valleys and we mourn and we struggle. And if we are honest with ourselves, sometimes we find it hard to hang on to the fact that God is faithful. But be assured as we examine the story of Lazarus here this morning, people who encountered real hardships just like ours and they didn't understand and in it and through it, while yes, on the surface it may seem hard for us to make sense out of it, but the reality of it is when the story is finished, when it's all said and done, the scales are not just balanced appropriately. 
but we will behold his glory. We ourselves will be made better by the wise and loving work of our Lord Jesus. Because he, my brothers and sisters, is faithful. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your goodness, your wisdom, your power, and your love, all of these things that are ours and yours. Lord, we praise you, we honor you, and Lord, we hang on to you. Thank you for being good even when we can't see it. Thank you for being providential even when we can't understand it. Help us. Lord Jesus, to trust and hang on to your faithfulness every single day. We love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.